Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In today's episode, we're going to deviate a bit from the usual fare of this podcast. Not long ago, I came across an article claiming that Jack the Ripper, the serial killer from 19th century London, may have been a surgeon. While this is not an unsolved mysteries type show, and murder is not exactly a common topic here, there is enough surgical history to make this an interesting tangent. So let's take a stab at solving the case in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Okay, let's start out with some basic facts. And before we go much further, I do want to warn you, listener, that there is some graphic material coming up. This being a History of Surgery podcast, we don't cover a lot of gruesome murders, but that's certainly about to change. Picture yourself in the bustling city of Victorian London in the late 19th century specifically in the East End, in a neighborhood called Whitechapel, named after a small chapel dedicated to St. Mary, which has its earliest recordings dating back to 1329 CE. The heart of this area is the Whitechapel High Street, which was once part of the Roman road between the City of London and Colchester, exiting the City of London at Aldgate. By the late 16th century, the suburb of Whitechapel and surrounding areas had become, quote, the other half, end quote, of London, or outcast London to the wealthy Westenders, attracting industries such as tanneries, breweries, slaughterhouses, and foundries. It is funny how the east ends of cities tend to be poor, such as in London, but also New York, Paris, and Toronto, among many others. Some have postulated that this is because, in North America and Europe, prevailing winds typically blow west to east. The impact of air pollution and odors, such as would be created by the industries I just described, during the Industrial Revolution, would make locations downwind less desirable. Speaking of these industries, here's a fun fact. The Whitechapel Bell Foundry cast the famous Liberty Bell of Philadelphia and the bell in London's Big Ben. As some listeners may know, the Liberty Bell has a crack in it. The original, which arrived in Philadelphia in August of 1752, cracked during a test strike because the metal was too brittle and had to be recast twice. One legend has it that it rang out on July 8, 1776 to celebrate the first reading of the Declaration of Independence, although there is some doubt about that. But it did go into hiding in 1777, removed from Philadelphia by armed guard and hidden in a church in Allentown, Pennsylvania, as the fear was that the British would melt it down to make cannons, which, let's face it, is probably almost definitely what they would have done. It became known as the Liberty Bell in the 1830s, as it was initially called by the less patriotic-sounding State House Bell. Amazingly, it is not known when the current version first cracked, but it was last rung in February of 1846 on George Washington's birthday, leading it to be cracked beyond repair. There you go, a little history for my American listeners. But back to Whitechapel. By the late 1800s, after many people had moved from the rural countryside to the city of London, Attracted by the offer of work in the previously mentioned industries, that had become Dickensian in nature, overcrowded and suffering from poverty, crime, and, most relevantly to this story, prostitution. In 1888, when our story takes place, the Metropolitan Police estimated that there were 1,200 prostitutes in Whitechapel and 62 brothels. Now, of interest, the origin of the word prostitute comes from the Latin prostitutus, meaning to place before or in front, or, to put it another way, expose publicly or offer for sale. The root words are pro, meaning before, and statuaire, meaning to stand or establish. 
Same root word as statue or statuette. Now you know. And another quick side note, the elephant man, Joseph Merrick, was well known in Whitechapel as he was often exhibited in a shop on Whitechapel Road until being helped by the surgeon Frederick Treves of the Royal London Hospital, which happened to be across the street from the shop. If that tidbit piqued your interest, have a listen to Podcast 71, A History of Surgical Technologists. But not right now. Right now you should finish listening to this one. Let's continue with our tale. And between April 3rd of 1888 and February 13th of 1891, 11 women were killed in what have become known as the Whitechapel Murders. Most, if not all, of the victims were prostitutes, and the perpetrator, or perpetrators, were never caught. Now, at various points, some or all of these 11 unsolved murders were attributed to Jack the Ripper. However, the focus of our case involves five of these poor women over a three-month period in 1888, which all occurred within a mile of each other. Now, let's give some names and details to the victims. And again, I warn you that the details are quite gruesome, and I will only include those that are relevant to our story. The first victim was Mary Ann Nichols, age 42, who was murdered on Friday the 31st of August. Her throat had been slashed twice and nearly severed, and her abdomen cut open. The second, Annie Chapman, a 47-year-old prostitute, was found on September 8th. Her head was almost severed and her abdomen cut open, and part of the vagina and bladder had been removed. Soon thereafter, on September 28th, a letter was received at the Central News Agency signed Jack the Ripper, which is the origin of the name, threatening more murders. The name caught the public imagination, and Whitechapel was obviously in an uproar. Riots broke out as crowds attacked anyone carrying a black bag, as a rumor had spread that the Ripper carried his knives in such a bag. And who else carries blades in black bags? Makes you wonder if the crowd suspected a doctor. The 30th of September involved not one, but two murders within minutes of each other. The first, a prostitute named Elizabeth Stride, was found at 1 a.m., her throat cut, blood still pouring from the wound, suggesting the killer had been disturbed in the act. Forty-five minutes later, the body of Catherine Eddowes, 43, was found just a few minutes' walk away, again with a cut throat. In addition, her abdomen had been cut open, and the uterus and left kidney had been removed. Rumors caught the imagination of the people of London. Jack the Ripper was a mad doctor, or a Polish lunatic, or a Russian czarist, or an insane midwife. Now the fifth, and for our purposes last, victim was killed on November 9th. Mary Jeanette Kelly, 25, was found in her room, again with a cut throat. And again the body had been dismembered, including removal of the uterus and kidneys, and the heart was missing. This is considered the end of the Jack the Ripper killings, as the other Whitechapel murders do not fit the same pattern. And it was this pattern that led to a number of possible suspects. Some estimate more than a hundred different people have been suspected at one time or another. Given the disembowelments and removal of organs, many thought the murderer would have the skill set of a butcher or surgeon. This leads us to our suspect, who is connected to the final victim, Mary Kelly. We'll get to this connection in a minute, but first, let's learn about the accused, the Welsh-born London obstetrical surgeon, Sir John Williams. Born in 1840 in Gwynfe Hamlet, or Blownlinet, Carmarthenshire, Wales, and apologies for my pronunciation, he went on to a normal school in Swansea, so-called that they were meant to instill and reinforce particular norms in students, and had a short apprenticeship with a Swansea doctor. 
From there, Williams continued his education at the University of Glasgow and then went on to the University College Hospital in London to study medicine, graduating in 1865. Williams obtained junior appointments at the University College Hospital, Brompton Hospital, and Hospital for Sick Children before returning to Swansea. After a few years of general practice, he was persuaded to apply for a post of assistant obstetric physician at the University College Hospital in 1872. Williams obtained the rank of obstetric physician in 1883, professor of obstetric medicine in 1886, and had appointments to the staffs of Royal Waterloo Hospital for Women and Children and the General Lying-In Hospital. In fact, the surgical legend Joseph Lister became a consulting surgeon at the General Lying-In Hospital in March of 1879, one year before Williams did. I'd like to think that their paths must have crossed at some point. Now let's take a minute to talk about the name of this hospital, as it's quite odd. Lying-in is an archaic term for childbirth, and more specifically, the period of time before and after delivery that was prescribed for mothers. The postpartum period was often a month long. The hospital itself was one of the first maternity hospitals in Great Britain, opening its doors in 1767, and it only closed in 1971. After a refurbishment, it is now part of a hotel, where I guess people do lie in bed, so some connection has been kept. Williams was made the physician accouchée to Princess Beatrice of Battenberg and the Princess of Wales, later Queen Mary, in 1886. Remember from a previous episode that that is a physician who assists in childbirth, the French word accouché meaning to give birth from coucher, to go to bed. Anyways, Williams received the baronetcy in 1894 after assisting in the birth of future King Edward VIII. Let's wrap up his career with some other quick facts. He presided over the Obstetrical Society from 1887 to 1888. He helped to set up a Welsh hospital in South Africa during the Boer War and was involved in the campaign against tuberculosis in his native country of Wales. Now, you may see a pattern developing here. Williams was clearly a Cambrophile, meaning a lover of Wales and Welsh culture. This comes from Cambria, the Latinized version of the Welsh word for Wales, Comri. Early in his career, Williams had begun collecting Welsh books and manuscripts. Upon retirement to Carmarthenshire in 1903, ten years after resigning hospital appointments, Williams devoted himself wholeheartedly to founding a National Library of Wales. This project was realized in 1906, and his collection formed an integral part of the library, and he himself was chosen as its first president. To wrap up the story, he married Mary Hughes in 1872. They had no children, a fact that will come up again later, and he died in 1926 at the age of 85. And so was the life of Sir John Williams. Or was it? Did this otherwise honorable and productive life hide a dark secret? Let's consider the evidence. Now, there are two main sources that have postulated Williams as the murderer. The first is Antonia Alexander, an author, and also the great-great-great-granddaughter of the fifth and final victim, Mary Kelly. Antonia claimed to have discovered a photograph of a man in a 125-year-old locket contained in Mary's belongings who was not the victim's husband, but rather Sir John. According to family lore, Mary had had an affair for a number of years with a doctor who had taken her on trips to places like Paris, despite both being married to someone else. This, in my opinion, is purely circumstantial and only implies that the two may have known each other. 
The second source is Tony Williams, the great-great-nephew of Sir John. His evidence is that the surgeon would have had the medical knowledge necessary to remove vital organs from victims, had the murder weapon in his possession, and that he knew victims from the clinics he ran in Whitechapel, and that pages of his 1888 diary had been removed despite other diaries remaining intact. So let's get into some more details. As we already know, Sir Williams worked at several London hospitals, but one that I did not include was the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary, where all five victims were treated at some point. Williams practiced there on the weekends when the murders took place, and he himself claimed to have performed an abortion on Mary Ann Nichols at the infirmary in 1885, the first of Jack's victims. However, I think it would be fair to say that this would not be an uncommon procedure among prostitutes, and is circumstantial evidence at best, only proving that he knew one of the victims in some capacity, just like Antonia Alexander's evidence. In a letter dated September 8, 1888, Williams apologized to a friend for canceling an appointment because he had to attend a clinic in Whitechapel, the night the body of the second victim, Annie Chapman, was found. And apparently Williams ended his medical career and returned to Wales, as previously described, around the time of the last Ripper murder, although other sources have him practicing in London for a few more years. All of this evidence places Williams near the scene of the crimes and shows some passing familiarity with at least one victim, but it is hardly damning evidence. Now let's consider the murder weapon. Dr. Thomas Bond, a surgeon appointed to the Metropolitan Police A Division, a role we might now call a forensic medical examiner, who was known as an excellent medical witness and considered one of the first criminal profilers, was asked to review the previous cases thought to be connected to Jack the Ripper. He also examined the fifth and final victim, Mary Kelly, and determined that all of the Ripper murders had been committed using a knife six inches long that was very sharp, pointed at the top, and an inch wide. This description matches the surgical knife owned by Williams and was given to the National Library of Wales, where it still resides today, along with his diaries and several slides of uterus tissue, which I'm interpreting to mean endometrial biopsies. Tony Williams claims that this is the very knife used in the murders, and the slides prove his interest in female anatomy and fertility, which leads us to the issue of motive. Why would a well-to-do, successful surgeon kill and mutilate prostitutes in one of the most destitute neighborhoods in London, a location where he himself cared for such patients. The hypothesis provided is that Williams was so distraught about his wife's inability to bear children that he took to murdering random women so as to discover a cure for their infertility. Now this stretches credulity for a number of reasons. In the late 19th century, there was no longer a shortage of corpses to study and examine. Williams, as an obstetrician, would be very familiar with the most current medical information and would have access to many patients with infertility that he could learn from without committing murder. And really, how effective would it be to rapidly remove a few uteri in the hopes of gleaning knowledge that he wasn't already aware of? The evidence provided by both of these authors is purely circumstantial and does not provide much real evidence that John Williams was Jack the Ripper. There is an entire industry built around Jack the Ripper, including books, tours, and even a museum. There is more to gain by speculating on new suspects than there is to dismiss such flimsy accusations outright. I think we are safe to say that the good name of Sir John Williams, a well-respected surgeon and proponent of Welsh culture, remains firmly intact. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. 
In the next episode, we'll get back to our usual fare. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.